You're listening to KXRY Portland at 107.1 and 91.1 FM and KXRWLP Vancouver at 99.9 FM. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Environmental activist Tenny White gained a lot of attention helping people in poor black communities. Their objective was to shut me up. I will not be shut up. It may have been too much attention. I think she was shut up because she was putting pressure in all the right places. An environmental activist goes to jail as deadly chemicals continue to wipe communities off the map. But this used to be a beautiful place. Flowers, I can't even plant flowers. They don't grow. I guess we just, they just probably waiting on us for all of us to die out because everybody is gone just right out in here. On this episode of Reveal, the battle for environmental justice. But first, this news.
From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. We're taking a look at toxic environments this week, places where poisonous chemicals are so deadly they can devastate a town. We'll visit a few places like that this hour. One thing they all have in common, the people in these towns are overwhelmingly black, brown, and poor. Racist attitudes and cheap land create the conditions that polluting industries take advantage of and the government neglects. We'll start in Columbus, Mississippi, where Arthur Parker lives just down the street from a field where a factory used to be. He's had trouble with his backyard. No trees or nothing. Every time we plant some, it will die. And he says many of the people on the street have been sick. One of my neighbors down here, Mr. Malone, he had cancer. And he died maybe about four years ago. There's a lot of them on the street that had cancer. The Parkers noticed an oily substance in the soil of their backyard. And they weren't the only ones. Sharon Lerner, an investigative reporter with the online news site The Intercept, went to Columbus to learn more about what was in the dirt. Reverend Steve Jamison is the pastor of the Maranatha Faith Center, a church not far from Arthur Parker's house. In 1999, Reverend Jamison began digging to secure the foundation to expand the church. He came across little gooey beads that bubbled up in the soil. We realized that we could not get rid of this black jelly-looking substance. The deeper we dug, the more we saw of it. Reverend Jamison didn't know what the jelly-looking stuff was, but there was a factory about a quarter mile down the road that belonged to a company called Kerr-McGee. It was a giant energy and chemical company. It's perhaps best known for operating the nuclear facility where Karen Silkwood was poisoned by plutonium. Reverend Jamison had never seen the movie about Karen Silkwood, and he didn't know what the plant made. He called the factory, and they sent a manager over who told him that whatever was in the dirt wasn't dangerous. A few weeks later, Kermagee sent a cleanup crew to Reverend Jameson's site. When they came over, they came up with backhoes and about 15 workers, all dressed in hazmat. So I'm thinking, now, you just told me that this was not a bad product and it wouldn't hurt me, but your men are wearing hazmat suits. At that point in time, I stopped them, and our lawyer got involved, and that's how the thing got started. Kermagee's lawyers got involved, too, and the company and the pastor battled for years over what turned out to be creosote. Creosote is a tarry mixture of more than 200 chemical compounds. The company had used it for decades to coat railroad ties, and a lot of it had seeped into the soil. The EPA classifies creosote as a probable human carcinogen. It's also associated with a range of health problems, including kidney and liver troubles and chemical burns. While the court battle dragged on, the spot where the pastor had dug remained open on the church property. In 2007, the city covered it over with concrete. After it was covered, Kerr McGee insisted that there was no creosote on the property, but Reverend Jameson wasn't convinced. Kerr McGee had gone to court on this process and said, Your Honor, we have cleaned their property up. There's no crystal on that property. And so I kept saying, yes, there is. It's under, that, it's under that concrete. Reverend Jameson felt if he could look under the concrete, he could prove there was still creosote in the soil. So I said, we have to hire somebody else to make sure we can do this. So we went and found Tenny out of Jackson. My name is Tenny White. I'm 58 years old. I'm a little short African-American lady. Tenny White owned a small environmental testing lab in Jackson. She'd been performing and analyzing tests on water and soil for dozens of years. 
and could make sense of the reports that Kerr McGee was presenting in court. She knew what, what numbers and what things to look for, so she could read the reports. And she said, oh no, you skewed this number or you put a decimal point here when it should have been there. The city told Reverend Jameson not to move the concrete on his property. Tenney said he should to prove the creosote was there. I get my backhoe, get in that ditch, foop, pull in, nothing but creosote. <laughs> a huge pile of black, shiny, tarry creosote sitting right there on Reverend Jameson's property where everybody told him it wasn't. Tenney's work with Reverend Jameson ultimately led the Environmental Protection Agency to declare 90 acres around Kermagee's plant in Columbus a Superfund site. The victory also inspired Tenney and Reverend Jameson to travel around the Deep South helping other people struggling with environmental contamination. They started the Coalition of Communities for Environmental Justice in 2009. We coined the phrase, Mississippi still burning, because everywhere we went and looked, we saw Hattiesburg, uh, we saw it at Ocean Springs, we saw it in Grenada. The government had been made aware of all these situations, but was doing nothing about it. Tenney found the situation in Hattiesburg particularly heartbreaking. That's where Kerr McGee operated their Gulf States creosote plant. I went to a community meeting in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and these women talked about losing their babies. They talked about miscarriages. They talked about stillborn babies. They talked about losing babies in their first year of life. This was their reality. It was increasingly clear to Tenney that there was another element to the problem. She researched environmental cleanups around the state, and she says the better-off, whiter communities tended to be treated differently. There was a creosote site in Wiggins, Mississippi, that got cleaned up in a year. But they can't clean up Columbus or Hattiesburg in two decades. In 2009, she wrote a series of blunt, angry letters to the head of the EPA in Washington, Mississippi's Department of Environmental Quality, and the state attorney general, making the case that poor black communities were treated unjustly. Heather Sanchez is a graduate student who in 2008 was writing her master's thesis about the coalition that Reverend Jameson and Teddy formed. You can't forget the first time you meet Tenny White. You could just tell she knew her stuff. Heather saw Tenny explain the creosote problem to the Hattiesburg City Council. She left the room speechless, you know, because her presentation led me at least to believe that it was very clear what had happened in that community. That, you know, an industry came in and they polluted and they didn't clean up. Tenny's activism didn't pay well. Sometimes it didn't pay at all. They met in a church, so they would pass the plate around from time to time, and they would all give what they could to Tenny, and that's how she would work. Tenny and Reverend Jameson listened to people's complaints, explained technical terms, and told residents about similar situations in other towns. Instead of just one community talking about their problems, they came together as like, here we are, three communities living different parts of the state, all facing the same types of problems. And I think when they showed up in number like that and they had the science and the data to back it up, people had to listen. Reverend Jameson began to worry that Tenny might be getting too much attention. We tried to get Tenny to calm down. She was very passionate. I said, Tenny, you're fighting some big, big boys here. Let's take it one at a time. But she was all over, all over the state. 
<laughs> Reverend Jameson was clearly worried that Tenny would get herself into trouble, but even he was surprised about what happened next. It was the summer of 2009, and EPA special investigator showed up at Tenny's lab. He wanted to talk about some tests she'd been hired to do. The investigator visited a second time, and the agency eventually accused her of making up the test results. When Reverend Jameson heard about this, he felt the explanation was simple. I think she was set up because she was putting pressure in all the right places. But the charges against Tenny turned out to be anything but simple. Tenny, you there? I'm here. This call is from a federal prison. The EPA, along with the Department of Justice, charged Tenney with fabricating test results and lying to federal investigators. In 2013, Tenney was convicted and sentenced to 40 months in federal prison. We talked about her case in 15-minute phone conversations spread out over several months. She explained that it all hinged on work she'd done for one company, Borg Warner, which makes car parts. State regulations required the company to test its wastewater for metals, and they'd hired Tenney to do the testing. The company said Tenney hadn't supplied all the data she was supposed to and reported her to the EPA. What trouble were you causing EPA, do you think? Well, I was kind of going over EPA reaching for its head and going to Washington, D.C. and making kind of a stink about what had happened at Columbus when the southeast region was already aware of it and had been aware of it for some years. And what they could tell me about it later was, well, you know, Columbus was just one of those places that fell through the cracks. And I contend that was a pretty big crack. She'd been going after the EPA, but now they were coming after her. I asked Borg Warner for an interview several times, and they declined. But at the trial, several of their employees testified that the reports Tenney turned into the company, called DMRs, were based on fabricated data. Tenney denied this, but couldn't back up her claim. She says the hard drive where she stored the data had crashed. They subpoenaed my hard drive. When we asked for a copy of the hard drive, they subpoenaed something I couldn't even search. Tenney's lawyers argued that the tests had no environmental consequence, and later tests showed no excess metals in the water. The prosecutors didn't dispute that fact, so it wasn't clear why she landed in court, let alone prison. I called the EPA many times in the hope that I might get someone to address these questions on tape. I never did, but I did speak to Doug Parker. He's a former EPA official who was in charge of the agency's criminal division during Tenny White's investigation and prosecution. He was familiar with the case, but didn't know all the details. He told me the EPA ranks its criminal investigations. For example, if a a case involved a death or serious bodily injury, it was automatically at the top. So I asked him why Tenny's case was prosecuted if it involved no environmental harm. When I reminded Doug that Tenny was sentenced to more than three years, he acknowledged that her punishment was unusually harsh. It's a significant sentence and is not one that I would expect for that. But he said that Tenny wasn't the only person who had been charged with falsifying DMRs and that it's crucial that lab owners be held to a high standard. If you don't have that level of honesty and accurate reporting, the whole environmental compliance structure can potentially crumble. The average sentence of people convicted by the government of criminal environmental offenses is 18 months in prison. 
Tenney got 40. And remember Kerr McGee, the company that had polluted Reverend Jameson's churchyard? Turns out his was one of thousands of sites across the country it had polluted with creosote and other hazardous materials. So what happened to them? It gets a little complicated. Kerr McGee tried to avoid responsibility for the pollution by spinning off a new company and making that company responsible. The rest of Kerr McGee was now profitable and was bought by yet another company called Anadarko. Still with me? Anadarko did end up having to pay $5 billion to clean up the polluted sites. That sounds like a lot of money, but it was just a fraction of what the communities calculated they needed. Executives, meanwhile, made millions, and in one case, hundreds of millions of dollars in the deal. But none of them faced any criminal charges. So I asked Doug Parker why Tenny White served time when the chemical company executives walked free. It is hard when it's laid out like that to reconcile that. Kermagee no longer exists, so it couldn't respond to this story. But during their legal battle with Reverend Jameson, the company issued a statement that said, our environmental performance has been nationally recognized for environmental responsibility, and our plants operate safely and have not harmed anyone. I thought of one other person who might be able to explain why Tenney landed in prison. Robert Wilson was the Borg Warner environmental health and safety manager who had hired Tenney to do those tests back in 2008. Though his name came up more than 100 times during the trial, neither the prosecution nor the defense called him to the stand. I wondered why. Robert now lives in LaGrange, Georgia. I arrived to the trial, and they took me off to a small room where I sit for three different days. Robert told me the prosecutors had interviewed him about the case and told him that they might want him to testify. But he waited in a little room at the courthouse and was never called to the stand. He was allowed to watch the end of the trial from the courtroom, though. I'm amazed at the lawyers they sent from the Justice Department out of Washington, D.C., and all the trouble they went to to prosecute a small-time little black businesswoman in Jackson, Mississippi. You don't bring that much firepower if you're going to be stepping on ants. Somebody wanted Tinny put away and out of their hair. It seemed pretty clear why the prosecution might not have wanted the jury to hear Robert's take on Tenny. He had worked with her for years. She was great to work with. She was the epitome of professional, and her knowledge of the OSHA statutes and environmental law was impeccable. Robert was friendly with White and knew she'd been helping poor communities take on polluters. I even tried to warn her at that time that you need to watch yourself because these people don't play. You have the possibility of causing them multi-million dollars in lawsuits and expenses, and Tenny, they'll come after you with a sledgehammer. Robert said he couldn't be 100% sure that Tenney had provided the water testing data because he left the job shortly after the test results would have arrived. From an environmental standpoint, though, he felt the test didn't matter. It's almost a no harm, no foul thing. That's why I still don't understand to this day why they went after Miss White. There wasn't even a great potential for any type of damage to the environment at all. And he couldn't imagine why Tenney wouldn't have performed the tests. What is her motivation for risking her whole career and reputation for a $150 test? That makes no sense to me whatsoever.
I took Danny's case to environmental attorney Victor Yannacone to get his opinion. Yannacone led legal crusades against Agent Orange and the pesticide DDT. He also helped start the Environmental Defense Fund. I wanted to know what he thought about the government's decision not to call Robert Wilson to the stand. He could have pointed out to the jury that the tests were not the basis for any compliance or regulatory action. Yannacone also questioned why Tenney's lawyers never mentioned that she was an activist during the trial. Of course the attorney should have introduced the fact she was an environmental activist and an environmental advocate for her community. I was never able to talk to Tenney's defense attorneys. I called and emailed them several times to ask if they would speak to me about this case, but they declined. After more than a year of corresponding and talking to her on the phone, I finally met Tenny in person. In June of 2015, she was released after serving 27 months of her sentence. Her son, Troy, and I went to pick her up at the Federal Correctional Institute in Tallahassee. The first thing she wanted to do as a free woman was get a real cup of coffee. She was in good spirits. Nothing has happened to me that was really life-threatening, you know. They didn't manage to kill me. They couldn't shoot me. They couldn't eat me. She didn't seem cowed by the experience. Their objective was to shut me up. I will not be shut up. While she was in prison, Tenny lost the lab building she owned. She also lost the licenses she needs to operate it. As a convicted felon, it'll be tough to find a job but she plans to keep doing exactly what she was doing before. I found out that the best thing that I can do is simply tell the story. You don't need a license to tell the story. I honestly believe I need to finish what I start. Tenny now lives in Jackson, Mississippi with her son, daughter-in-law, grandchild, and a dog. She recently began advising people on how to deal with contamination on a nearby plot of land. Sharon Lerner is an investigative reporter with the online news site The Intercept. You can find a link to her story at revealnews.org. One county in rural Alabama was the heart of a new chemical industry in the 30s, and the toxic legacy has nearly wiped the community off the map. I've been living in this mess all my life, and I'm 67 years old. All my life I've been living here. I lived around the corner. I was born and raised around the corner there. I've been living in this. It's just probably waiting on us for all us to die out because everybody is gone just throughout out in here. That and what a weakened EPA could mean for minorities. Next on Reveal.
From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. When President Trump nominated Scott Pruitt to head the EPA, many environmental activists got worried. As the Attorney General of Oklahoma, Pruitt spent years suing the EPA over what he sees as regulatory overreach. Many think his appointment is a part of a plan to eventually dismantle the agency. But long before Pruitt, the EPA's record on environmental justice was a mixed bag. I asked Lisa Garcia about the agency's record. She was a senior advisor on environmental justice at the EPA during the Obama administration. She's now a lead lawyer at Earth Justice. So let me ask you this. An analysis of the EPA's Office of Civil Rights found that they hadn't made a formal finding of discrimination in 22 years. So for me, the big question is, why do we need them? I think one of the things about environmental justice is that there's still a need to really focus on communities that have been left behind and haven't reaped the same benefits, it'll be terrible for the United States to have halted the progress we've made on protecting our environment and really making inroads to protect public health. And it would be devastating if this is the EPA that takes us backwards. And then just quickly on the civil rights piece. So the Office of Environmental Justice and the Office of Civil Rights Um, kind of have two different mandates. One is out of the executive order, which is a lot more voluntary. And the Office of Civil Rights, in my mind, is it's an enforcement office. So it is bad news that the EPA has never found a claim that meets the disparate or discriminatory prong in the law. But I do think that throughout the Obama administration and over the 10 years, you've seen improvements on how they're handling it. And we hope that this administration, the Trump administration, will allow that to go forward because I think the Civil Rights Office at the EPA really needs to improve. So I would agree with that assessment. So, I mean, that was my next question. Like, what exactly what's going on with the environmental justice at the EPA now? Well, unfortunately, the EPA is under attack. One of the things that we have heard is that the Office of Environmental Justice and the work that they're doing is slated for being cut. I'm outraged personally just because those are people working there. They've dedicated their lives to to environmental justice, to making sure that benefits flow through to some of the most forgotten communities. And so it's just a shame on a personal level. But I have to say that I, I think it's the most fiscally irresponsible decision. It's only 45 to 60 people. And so you're not getting much savings. But you're losing an office that has one of the biggest bangs for your buck in that they give so much to EPA and so much to running that agency and also so much to communities across the United States. To me, it it sounds like a terrible decision and an uneducated decision. Have you talked to your former colleagues at the EPA? I have a little bit, yes. What's the feeling like in the building? Like, how how are the employees feeling knowing that all these cuts are coming? The budget came out even before anyone had really assessed a lot of the programs at the EPA or had talked to staff. And so I think that was kind of a morale hit in that the initial budget or the proposed budget kind of was created without talking to folks and without really having Pruitt, the administrator, be there for that long and really assessing the value of each program and what EPA does. In fact, I heard that the administrator spoke at a public event with a bunch of state regulators 
And the states are even upset because if you cut 31% of the budget, that's going to flow through huge cuts in the states. It's it's a huge domino effect. And anyway, so I think people at EPA are not happy and they're waiting to see what the real budget will be. If you could talk to the EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt, what would you say? Well, I worked for two great administrators, so Lisa Jackson and Gina McCarthy. Um, So it's very hard to say what I would say to uh, Administrator Pruitt. But one is I would say while there is a political aspect to his role, that at EPA in particular, the role has to be to really try to think of the future of the United States and think of the future of our environment. You know, politics may be for the next three years or four years or however long he's going to be there, that he really needs to look into the future and think hard about what kind of future he wants for his family or his family's children's families. You know, I understand that they're going to cut the budget and I understand that there's going to be um, some painful times ahead, but I hope that it's not so adversarial as people have painted it. Maybe he'll get a different perspective and understand that, the, you know, the, the EPA doesn't have some office of evilness where they're just trying to undo um, industry and undo jobs and um, <laughs> and take away people's livelihoods. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that it'll humble him a little bit. Lisa Garcia was a senior advisor on environmental justice at the EPA during the Obama administration. She's now a lead lawyer at Earth Justice. Thanks to Ike Shreeskandarajo for producing that interview. One of the crucial responsibilities for the EPA is the regulation of dangerous chemicals. But even when the agency does ban something, that doesn't mean it disappears from the environment. Some of these chemicals you can trace back to when they first appeared. In 1929, a small factory in Anniston, Alabama, owned by the Swan Chemical Company, began making PCBs. PCBs are chemicals that were created to withstand extreme heat and pressure. They became widely used in insulation. In 1935, Swan was bought out by another chemical company called Monsanto. Today, we know it as a global agricultural giant. Besides producing herbicides like Roundup, it's in the forefront of biotechnology. But half a century ago, PCBs were Monsanto's golden ticket. The company was the sole manufacturer of PCBs in the United States. It was lucrative until scientists linked it to serious illnesses, including cancer. The chemical was banned four decades ago, but the toxic legacy is still with us today. For a look at the damage PCBs have caused, we sent reporter David DeRoche of our partner WNPR to the place where it all began. On the outskirts of Anniston, white steam hisses its way into the sky, rising out of smokestacks at the former Monsanto chemical facility. Other chemicals are made there now, but for some 40 years, the factory produced nearly one and a half billion pounds of PCBs. Most of the chemical was sold to companies that made electrical equipment and building materials. As for the waste, tons of it. Monsanto dumped it into local waterways or buried it in landfills. This was before there were laws regulating that kind of thing. Snow Creek winds through the West Anniston neighborhood and is connected to the chemical plant by a ditch. Curtis Ray is 67. He's lived in West Anniston all his life. Years ago, he and other kids from the neighborhood would swim in the creek, 
completely unaware of what was around them. I know back in the day, we used to dam these waters up and swim in them. We were teenagers, we didn't know. <laughs> you know, we used to swim in that muddy water. Me and my cousins and some friends. And they pardoned us and we didn't even know it. Local churches even baptized people there. But now, Snow Creek is just a cement-lined ditch. No fish, no rocks, or algae, not even dirt. Curtis drives me around the mostly African-American neighborhood that's flanked by the chemical plant. Do you remember what this used to be? Uh, yeah, that used to be a, a, a motel. Used to be a motel there. What about that one there, do you know? Uh, I think that was a washroom weathered boards dangle over windows they look like a slight breeze would rip them right off see all these empty houses here there's a lot of empty houses out here now a lot of these people have died and they left their houses and all that stuff Curtis says people in West Aniston die young, die of all sorts of strange diseases. But Alabama doesn't track most illnesses, so it's hard to verify this. He takes me to see a friend, Sylvia Curry. Her house sits at the bottom of the hill with several boarded up homes across the street overgrown with weeds. Well, this used to be a beautiful place. Flowers, I can't even plant flowers. They don't grow. Gardens won't grow. No, won't nothing. Like Curtis, Sylvia tells me about rampant illnesses and people dying all around her. My husband, he died with a rare cancer. I have had cancer twice. Then I have a thyroid problem. I have a heart problem. I mean, just sickness. Just sickness. The EPA has cleaned up hundreds of Aniston properties over the last 15 years. They basically remove the top 12 inches of dirt, which has the highest PCB concentrations. But that never happened at Sylvia's house. I've been living in this mess all my life, and I'm 67 years old. All my life I've been living here. I lived around the corner. I was born and raised around the corner there. I've been living in this, so I guess we just, <laughs> it's just probably waiting on us for all of us to die out because everybody is gone just throughout out in here. Even though millions have been spent cleaning up the soil, EPA tests show that PCB levels in the outdoor air haven't changed at all in a decade. It's Monsanto's lasting legacy in Anniston. It's a legacy that goes back years and eventually led nearly every single Anniston resident to sue Monsanto and its spinoff company, Solutia, for poisoning the city. During the trial, lawyers for the plaintiffs presented internal Monsanto documents showing that the company had reason to believe PCBs were highly toxic as early as 1937 and kept making them for decades. When the verdict came out in 2003, media from around the world covered the lawsuits. Smiles of relief in an Alabama courthouse after a jury found Monsanto and its spin-off company, Solutia, polluted the town of Anniston with toxic chemicals called PCBs. The jury found the companies guilty of six charges. 
Ellen Spears is a professor at the University of Alabama who wrote a book on Aniston's PCB battle. The jury found um, the Monsanto Chemical Company and its corporate partners responsible um, for suppression of the truth, for negligence, for wantonness, um, for outrage. Alabama law defines outrage as conduct beyond all possible bounds of decency, atrocious and utterly intolerable in civilized society. And that's what the jury ruled in, in one of these cases. Monsanto and Seleucia settled the suit for $600 million. But the companies never admitted fault. After the trial, Seleucia's then-CEO, John Hunter, talked to CBS News. I regret that, that the community and Seleucia and everybody else is, uh, is embroiled in this. But, he continued, We do not believe that there is any evidence that links PCBs to those serious long-term health effects. As big as the settlement was, it didn't really help the 21,000 residents who sued. Most got less than $7,000 apiece. A handful of lawyers collected $249 million. Curtis Ray was one of the plaintiffs. The lawyers didn't even pay for the blood tests. We had to pay for our own blood tests. Sylvia Curry got about $12,000, but most of that money was spent on hospital bills once her husband got sick. And it's bad, and it's depressing, too, to live like this, you know, knowing that there is money that was for us, and we can't do no better. So, maybe one day, I hope to live to see it, you know, I can move, get me another house, get rid of this one, and move. For children who haven't been paid yet because they're under 19, the average payout is going to be less than $2,500. And now, one of the most significant aspects of the settlement, a health clinic, is about to shut down. When the federal government did a huge four-year health study in Aniston, they couldn't find a direct link to disease, but they did find a correlation between PCB exposure and high rates of diabetes, high blood pressure, thyroid problems, weakened immune systems, and some cancers. Court records show that about 7,000 people are registered for services at the West Aniston Medical Clinic. But soon, the clinic will close its doors for good. The funding has run out. I meet with the medical clinic's advisory group for lunch at a crowded restaurant downtown. Curtis Ray is there, and so is community activist Shirley Baker. Are you concerned about what will happen once the clinic shuts down? Yes, of course, because there are so many of our claimants that really may or may not qualify for other resources and services that in the community. So that is a major concern of ours, that there are going to be several, a, a lot of our people that are going to be left without anything now. So that's a major concern. And I may as well put it on record that a Solution Eastman need to continue funding our clinic. That's right. At least for another 40 years, because that's how long they contaminated us. The company she's talking about, Eastman, bought out Seleucia after it declared bankruptcy. I asked the company if they'd continue to fund the clinic, but didn't get an answer. Both Sylvia Curry and Curtis Ray have illnesses consistent with chronic PCB exposure, but no definite connections have been made. So we're going to keep pecking away and hoping that uh, relief will come. Yeah. yeah, we got we got to keep our hope and faith. 
I would just like to see justice. I would. I mean, you know, I would. Yeah, I would like to have the money too. Yeah, but I would just like to see the justice done because they know they have done us wrong. That story comes to us from reporter David DeRoche of WNPR in Hartford, Connecticut. Coming up, we go back to Flint, Michigan to see what's happening with the water crisis there now. Justice, it'll never be justice because we are American people and there is no snowball chance in hell that we should ever have to not have clean water in America. No way. So whatever the state did or those people did or whoever pushed that button did, They'll get their just day, their judgment day. I can't judge them, it's not for me to judge. But this agreement that they had with the lawsuit and everything, that's gonna put a Band-Aid on it. But it's still not solving the problem. No one in Flint will ever trust that water again. No one. The latest development from Flint coming up next. This is Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. When you say Flint, Michigan, the first thing you probably think of is contaminated water. High levels of lead started turning up in the tap water there, but people didn't know it right away. It started when the town switched its water source from Detroit to the Flint River in the summer of 2014. Lindsay Smith has covered the story since the beginning for Michigan Radio. They produced the award-winning documentary, Not Safe to Drink, about the crisis which we aired here on Reveal last year. We're going to talk to Lindsay about what's going on in Flint right now, but first, let's listen back to a part of her original documentary. Eight months after Flint started pumping its drinking water from the Flint River, Leanne Walters stopped letting her kids drink it. Everyone from the four-year-old twins to her teenagers, J.D. and Kaylee. We quit drinking the water in December when my 14-year-old got sick, and it started coming through our filter out the kitchen sink, Brown. That was December 2014. Walter says the water had this orangish-brown tinge that would not go away, even when she put a fresh cartridge in the water filter. And at this point, she was putting a fresh cartridge in the water filter at least a couple times a month. Back when Flint was buying Detroit water, she only replaced it a couple times a year. So she called the city out to come take a look. They sent Mike Glasgow. He's Flint's utilities administrator. Glasgow ran a test on Walter's water. About a week later, I got the results, and it was uh, pretty high for the lead. So I called her right away to let her know. The results were alarming enough that Glasgow called Walter's right away. 
but he couldn't reach her that afternoon. He left her a voicemail. The voicemail box of Walters vividly remembers that message late that night. Hi, Leanne. It's Mike from the water department. I just wanted to call and let you know we got your test back. Please, whatever you do, don't let your kids drink the water. Don't make their juice with it. And please just give me a phone call back as soon as possible. Walters tossed and turned all night, worrying. How bad could the water be? By the time Walters did get a hold of Mike Glasgow the next day, she was kind of panicked. He was like, your number's at 104, and I'm like, okay, well, what is it supposed to be? He's like, not over 15, and I'm like, wait, what? I just want to make sure you really get these numbers they're talking about. I mean, there's no level of lead exposure that's considered safe. But any amount of lead in water above 15 parts per billion is a problem. At that level, cities are supposed to at least warn you how bad your lead levels are. The lead level in the water at the Walters place was seven times higher than that. But at that moment, hearing that number, 104 parts per billion, Walters remembers she didn't know what to make of it. Okay, and I'm like... What does this mean? He's like, we don't know. He's like, we've never seen a number like this before in the city. He's like, it's the highest anyone's ever seen. It turned out that when Flint switched its water source, it stopped adding chemicals that prevent lead in old pipes from seeping into the water. A lot's happened since this story first broke. The town is back on Detroit water and has started replacing old pipes. Congress has approved $100 million in funding for Flint, and the state is giving away free bottled water for now. Lindsay has continued to follow the story. She recently went to Flint and found people still worried about their water. Lindsay drove around in the pouring rain with Community Outreach and Education, or CORE teams. You should reach your destination by 3.04 p.m. They go door to door, making sure residents have a working filter for their faucets to keep lead out of their water. It's a really crazy job. You you have these teams of people. They're driving around in vans. Sometimes they pull up like a whole city bus and teams of people will like load out of the bus with their clipboards and their vests on and everything. Um, just kind of like swarm an apartment building. The core teams have knocked on more than 80,000 doors. But those doors don't always open. I mean, it's really difficult to get a hold of people. You've got vacant houses. People have jobs. And then once you get inside people's homes, you find just like working with them to try to make sure that they have a working faucet filter. You'd think it would be pretty user friendly. But I mean, sometimes people think that they have one set up and the core team will find that, oh, yeah, they have a faucet filter. Right. But the cartridge isn't even in it. So it's you know, they've been using it for six months and there's nothing even in the filter filtering out the lead or they you know, they've had it on there for a year and they didn't know they needed to change the cartridge or elderly people. They can't see the little red blinking light. They can hardly see it. So there's just all these little things that make that job kind of a a crazy job. you got to be a good problem solver, that's for sure. The EPA and the state say the water is now safe to drink, but they're also advising everyone in Flint to use filters at least for the next three years. I find that when I talk to people, most people don't even trust to drink it with a filter, even though scientists have proven that, you know, that it will remove the lead, but people, I mean, they just don't trust it. They'd rather drink bottled water. Lindsay and the core team pull up to the home of Eric Washburn. All right, how you doing? Are you Eric? Yes, I am. Okay, I'm Joe. I'm the guy that called, and this is Donna. And I'm Lindsay. Lindsay. And Lindsay. How you doing? 
They make their way into Eric's house, which he says a local church donated to him. But it's a real fixer-upper. Well, I really appreciate this so much. I really do. I really do. We're trying to get this place and fixed up, and I got to get a, a Terminex guy out here. And... Eric knows the underground pipe that brings drinking water into his home is made of lead, but he can't get the filter to work. Because this keeps, every time I put any weight on this, it, it makes the lean yeah. down. Yeah, okay. And it leaks, and I got a bucket under there to catch it, but this one in here is leaking right here. There's a bat one right there. That one's leaking all the time. Oh, yeah. And, so basically uh, what's, what's happening is, is right here, is leaking. The, the, uh, the resident faucet cannot hold a fixture. It's too weak to hold a filter system. So what we have to do is put them on a fixture replacement program so that way you can get the new faucet put in through the uh, state, through our program. Um, and she's uh, investigating the bathroom to see if it also has the same problem. Is either outdated or it won't hold a, uh, a filter onto it. The filters are a big part of the temporary solution to getting rid of lead in Flint's water because by the end of the summer, the state will stop giving away free bottled water in Flint. For more on what's been going on in Flint, Lindsay Smith joins us on the line. And, Lindsay, there have been some big developments. Let's start off with a recent report from the Michigan Civil Rights Commission. What did they find? I mean, this really was a pretty comprehensive report that looked at a basic question, which was, did race play a role in causing the Flint water crisis? And their answer was yes. And it was almost like... um, to a lot of people that testified at the hearing, it was a no duh, yes, you know, like a not even without a question, yes. You know, Flint is a, a city that 41% of people live at the poverty level or below. You have 56% of the population that's African American. And, you know, like an, a median household income in Flint, I mean, I'm talking a household income is $25,000 a year. So this report really, it looked at the sort of situation that led to the water crisis, and they went way back. They went back decades, just systematic issues with housing and education that helped drain resources from Flint and into the suburbs, job opportunities that African-Americans weren't allowed to get in Flint decades ago. And they kind of laid out that that history shouldn't be ignored. So when we talked to you last year, a couple people had been fired, but has anyone been held accountable with criminal charges? So the criminal investigation is still ongoing, believe it or not, uh, Al. They've, they've charged 13 current and former state, local government employees. Two of those people that have been charged, uh, you know, the top people, I would say, were two emergency managers that made the decisions to switch water sources. Um, And you've got a couple of lower level employees that have sort of flipped and are willing to work with prosecutors. But because this is still an ongoing investigation, I wouldn't be surprised if more charges come down in the coming year, I would say. There's a recent settlement in federal court. What happened there? So this is the settlement that the Natural Resource Defense Council and the ACLU of Michigan brought on behalf of Flint residents. And they weren't seeking really anything monetary, right? They weren't looking for money. They wanted Flint to make sure that they were following the Safe Drinking Water Act. 
and they won. I mean, they got this agreement out of the deal. It's a really unprecedented nature because a legal agreement, everybody's been saying, oh, the state's been saying, oh, we'll replace lead lines in Flint. Well, now we don't have to take their word for it. It's a binding legal agreement. And that is a huge win for people in Flint. You went to a community meeting that was held by the plaintiffs in the federal lawsuit, and people were talking about what justice would look like to them. So what'd they say? The feedback that I got was not only getting pipes replaced, having a say in in local decisions, having a say in the future water sources, and being able to make their, their own decisions without major state interference. You know, having Medicare for everybody, because people have... You know, it's not just the lead exposure, but a lot of people have like weird rashes still on their skin or they have high blood pressure related to it or just these these medical problems and their medical bills add up. And that's something that nobody's paying for. And that's coming out of people's pockets. So better access to health care. Um, and then also the school systems are going to be uh, kind of dealing with the fallout, you know, where you had thousands of young children exposed and that's going to, you know, that's going to have lasting effects. So people really want special education services in the schools and they want improvements in their neighborhood. I mean, you still have a city where you drive through certain neighborhoods and it's it's like lots and lots of empty houses. And I don't know how you convince people to move in and invest in in Flint, but they need they definitely need good neighbors in in neighborhoods to help revitalize things. So did you get to speak to anybody in the community? I talked to a woman. Her name is Doris Allen. She had a lead level in her water, one water test. It was like 2,000 parts per billion. And the federal standard, by the way, is 15. So we're talking pretty, pretty heavy duty lead in her water. And she still hasn't had her lead line replaced. And I asked her, you know, you know now that you'll get your lead line replaced. Will this be justice to you? Justice? It'll never be justice because we are American people and there is no snowball chance in hell that we should ever have to not have clean water in America. No way. So whatever the state did or those people did or whoever pushed that button did, they'll get their just day, their judgment day. I can't judge them. It's not for me to judge. But this agreement that they had with the lawsuit and everything, that's going to put a Band-Aid on it. But it's still not solving the problem. No one in Flint will ever trust that water again. No one. So what's the big picture? What's the future for Flint looking like? There are some huge decisions coming up in the next few months that are going to play a big role in Flint's future and the future of the city's drinking water right now. The city is paying for two water sources. They're buying water from Detroit. And they're also paying for this new pipeline that's not finished yet. And even if it was finished, the city water plant is not ready to be able to treat the water for at least another two years. So you got financial strain on both ends there. And remind you, finances is what really kind of got Flint into this mess in the first place. Um, So that could be a big problem. And then the other thing for residents is they just... Uh, they have been getting a credit on their water bill. They pay some of the highest water rates in the country. And starting last month, that credit ended. Um, So now people are paying their full water bills. And for some people that, oh man, that's, that's a sore spot for some people for sure. Lindsay Smith of Michigan Radio, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure.
Our show today was edited by Deb George. Ike Shreeskandaraja was our lead producer. Our staff includes Stan Alcorn, Fernanda Camarena, Julia B. Chan, Rachel DeLeon, Mwenda Hasey, Catherine Muskowski, Michael Montgomery, David Richard, Nina Satija, Michael Schiller, Ike Shreeskandaraja, Laura Starcheski, and Amy Walters. Our sound design team is the Wonder Twins. My man, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Claire C. Note Mullen. They had help this week from Catherine Raimondo and Mary Lee Williams. Our head of studio is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell is our editor-in-chief. Suzanne Reber is our executive editor. And our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson. And remember, there is always more to the story. Since I became Prime Minister, I have said that there should be no election until 2020. But now I have concluded that the only way to guarantee certainty and stability for the years ahead is to hold this election and seek your support for the decisions I must take. And so tomorrow, I will move a motion in the House of Commons calling for a general election to be held on the 8th of June. That motion, as set out